You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So glad to be with you this morning. And I want to start off this morning and just uh, genuinely tell you how much I love you. Uh, I was thinking about it this week, and, and, um, and we're always pushing to be more godly here. And, and I was thinking about my own kids, and I was thinking about um, uh, pushing them um, towards godliness, but um, the necessity to stop and just, and just for a moment acknowledge um, where we are, and to just say that I love you, and, and I'm genuinely proud of this church, and proud of of um, our members, our the people here, you, and um, I probably don't say that enough because we're always looking forward as to how we should grow, and so genuinely, just in my heart, um, I have so much love for this church, so much love for the for the people that are that are here, and I. Um, and, I, and I pray for you consistently. I, I think about you um, often. Um, and I want to encourage you to just keep going. Keep going towards godliness. Because the truth of the matter is, you're almost home. You're almost home. You're almost there. And um, it's going to be pretty soon um, that you would see the Lord face to face. And at first will be a surprise and a shock to you. And then we'll uh, begin your, your time in eternity. Um, there's nothing more important than uh, what you say of Christ and your relationship towards Christ. And, and that's extremely vital that you don't give your lives towards, towards anything else. And so I just say with all my heart that I love you as a church. Uh, keep going. Um, keep moving forward. Again, you're almost home. You're almost there, and you're going to see the Lord face to face. There's nothing more important than your relationship to Christ. Keep maturing. Keep being made holy. Uh, keep um, growing in your knowledge of the Word. The, the Word is going to save you. The Word is what will protect you. Uh, the Word is what will sanctify you. Um, the Word is what um, will ensure that you, that you know him. And when he returns, that you'll be ready um, for that. And so I encourage you to keep living obediently to his word, keep serving each other, keep praying for each other, keep being unified. Don't let there be any division among you. Um, keep uh, encouraging each other and unashamedly proclaiming the gospel truth to the lost world um, that you interact with every day. And so persevere, uh, deny the temptations of the world. You, you have to spend your life denying the temptations of the world. And uh, enjoy Christ, enjoy each other, and all that to say that it, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Don't take your eye off the prize. Don't look to the left or to the right. Keep going forward towards Christ. Uh, this is life and death 
that we're talking about, which is why we treat this Sunday every week with the utmost seriousness, because we're not dealing with trivial things. Uh, we're dealing with life or death. We're dealing with eternity, and uh, we're dealing with the truth of God. And so my encouragement to you is don't be caught up in um, flippant um, pursuits, uh, worldly pursuits. Aim to please the one who enlisted you. So let's move now into the text. And would you please open your Bible and turn with me to the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel. The 19th chapter of Luke's gospel starting in verse one. Luke chapter 19, verse one through verse 10. Luke 19, one through 10. And this is the section that we come to today as the, the Lord in his providence has given us um, this particular section as we just make our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel, um, we come to this very, very important uh, section, and uh, the Lord has so much to speak to us. Uh, we come to this story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, uh, Zacchaeus meeting Jesus, and this is a familiar and very joyful story, um, very straightforward story. We're going to spend two weeks in it. Uh, because we're going to do some theological framework work on the front side, and then we're going to get into it, um, and then next week we'll finish it. Um, but this is a familiar story. Many kids have sung songs about this story. Many people have written about this story, and uh, many parents and teachers have told this story, and there's a lot to learn from this story. It's very rich with truth. And so let's read it, shall we? Luke 19, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. What an awesome passage. 
And what we're seeing in this passage, the main point of this text, the reason why Luke gives it to us, and the, where we are in the journey of the redemptive narrative of, of the Bible, and of, especially of Christ's journey, the, the, the point um, that is being made within these 10 verses, right? The main point, the proposition, the thesis, the, 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 um, the main uh, objective that Luke is, is writing this for is, is to make clear one particular thing. And Jesus is making this clear at this point on his journey. What Jesus is making clear here is one main thing, which is the reason for which he came. Jesus at this point, what we're seeing here is Jesus make a clear statement about the reason for which he came. That's what we're seeing here. And that is to save sinners. Jesus here is making clear the reason for his coming, which is to save sinners. That's the main point. That's where we are on the journey. Jesus is making clear the reason for which he has come, which is to save sinners. And he's making that very clear here. And that's the particular doctrine or teaching being made known here, which is why I've entitled this. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners because that's what's being made known here. Now, if you think about it, this makes a lot of sense. Most recently in Luke's gospel, particularly, here's where we've been. Think about this. Jesus has given details about the present spiritual kingdom. Remember that? Remember how he gave these details about the present kingdom? It's a spiritual kingdom of salvation. Then he moves on and he gives details about the future kingdom. Remember this? About his future kingdom, his future visible coming kingdom. And this was going to be brought by his second coming, right? We see that in Luke chapter 17, verse 20 through 18, verse 8. So then Jesus moves on, and he describes really these four conditions for entering his kingdom. Remember? He describes these four conditions for having salvation. What's necessary for someone to enter the kingdom? Requisites for salvation. And, and then... He moves on, and we saw that in 18 verses 9 through 27. He moves on from there. Then Jesus speaks of the great gift that comes along with having this salvation, right? You'll be given um, blessing here on this earth and eternal blessing in heaven with God. And we saw that in 18, 28 through 30. So the kingdom, how to enter, the blessing of being in the kingdom, right? Then... Jesus gave, de gave details about his, his suffering, right? Which has been the very plan of God since the beginning that the Messiah should suffer and that makes salvation possible. That you could enter the kingdom, right? As God's promised king, right? He's the promised king and he makes salvation possible through his suffering. We saw that in 1831 through 34. And then we moved on to where we saw last week, Jesus healed a blind man where Jesus was displaying that he has the authority to save as the, the, uh, the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He's got the authority to save. We saw that in 1853 or 35 through 40, 43. So the kingdom, how to enter, 
the benefits of it. He makes it possible. He's got the authority to save. And now here, he's almost tying a bow on this whole thing. And what he's saying here is, this is the very reason for which he's come. For entrance into the kingdom. To save sinners. This is the very reason why Christ has come to earth. And he's just making it clear. This is what he's saying here. This is the reason why he's come. And in fact, Jesus states this purpose very clearly because you see at the end of this section, verse 10, just read along with me. It says this, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now that verse there is a summary verse. It's actually, it's actually a synopsis of what happens within the passage, but it's also a synopsis of the reason for which he's come. Right? This is a real life story. It's not a parable. It's a real life story. It's, but it's also an illustration to a larger truth, right? Of exactly what verse 10 says. In the exact order, we see this story play out. So you got the story and you got these elements seeking and saving. And Jesus then summarizing underneath I came to seek and to save the lost which summarizes the story, which then also speaks to the larger reason for which he's come, right? That's exactly what's happening here. And so this is the fundamental, fundamental purpose for which Jesus has come to earth. So he makes this clear. The Messiah came to save sinners. Listen now. This is the reason why God planned to send the Christ. This is the reason the Messiah has come to earth. This is the reason that he's heading towards his suffering. This is the reason for which he is here. This is the reason that he has made clear the conditions for salvation because he seeks to save the lost. This is the reason that he is suffering to make salvation possible. This is what he has authority to do. This is what Jesus has come to do, to live for, to die for, to raise for, to preach to, to call, to save, and to sanctify sinners who are separated from God, to reconcile a group of people for his own eternal possession, for their good, and for his glory. That's what he's come to do. And so now he's making this clear. Now, I want to spend some time establishing this theologically, biblically, before we ever just get into the text. The text is real easy. We're going to see it very clearly. And I want to show it to you, and you're going to understand that this is exactly what Jesus is, is saying. But let's understand some things across the scope of Scripture. And particularly, I just want to stay in John 1 through 7 to show this, because that's what you're reading in your Bible reading plan, or supposed to be, right? And we see it even clearly in those chapters. This informs our Christology, okay? This is important. This informs your Christology, meaning your beliefs, your understanding about what the Bible teaches about Christ. And here's what you would say under Christology. You would say his, the purpose of his incarnation or the purpose of his ministry, right? That's what we're being informed with as we read across the scripture and then even later on, I'm going to inform our soteriology, meaning what we understand about salvation. And so first, just through John 1 through 7, let's just look at a few things. In John 1, Jesus makes it clear that he came to seek and to save the lost, verses 9 through 13. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? God. This is the reason for which Jesus has come, to give light, the light of salvation, to give the new birth. John writes later in chapter 1, verse 29, quoting John the Baptist. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the reason for his coming. As the Messiah, he would be the divine sacrifice to remove the penalty of sin. John writes in chapter 3 in verses 16 through 17, you guys should know this, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. My three-year-old, the, the strand of, set of words just all runs together, right? He says, for God so loved the world that, you know, it's just like, I don't even know if there's a separation. It's all one word, right? But he goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In other words, that is to say that the Messiah's first coming was not to pronounce final judgment. That will happen at his second coming. Right? That's when he will condemn the world. The first coming was to do what? Provide the opportunity for salvation. To save the world. So his first coming as the incarnate son of God was for the purpose of and providing the means for the offering of salvation. Later on in John's gospel, John chapter 3, we read this in verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. For Christ came to satisfy God's own wrath in order to provide salvation for sinners. This is what he's come to do. He's making this clear. John, if we move on in John 4, 14, it says, Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus has come to provide this eternal life. In John chapter 5, as we move on to John 5 in the section of the Bible reading that you're reading, John 1 through 7, you see this. John 5 says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus came to provide freedom from the sentence of death because of your sin. Right? John 6, Jesus goes on. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the, for the life of the world is my flesh. In other words, if anyone believes in him, if anyone believes his word, they will receive life. This is what Jesus came to do, to provide life. And then finally in John 7, 38, Jesus says this, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of 
living water. And Jesus, listen, just continues to make this clear. You want to inform your Christology, the purpose for which Jesus came, the incarnation, is not only clear in John's gospel, as I've just showed you this truth clearly from John 1 through 7, a section because that's what you're currently reading through in your two-year Bible reading plan, but it's clear in all the gospels. And not only the gospels, but it's clear in the whole New Testament. And not only in the New Testament, but it's clear in the entire scriptures. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came in order to provide salvation. This is why he came. The purpose wasn't to provide physical healing. Jesus says that he does do that, and we see him do that. He did that. He did that in order to prove that he was the divine Christ, right? The end was not the healing. It was the means to an end to reveal his messiahship. That's not why he came. John 4, 48 tells us this clearly. And I'm just going to sit in this John 1 through 7. Because hopefully you've been reading it every day now for, I don't know, five days? Someone has been reading, right? John, uh, Jesus says this. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not, what? Believe. The purpose was to point to his messiahship. To his to the fact that he is the Christ, the, the, the anointed one. The purpose of the miracles were to display his authority to save. In John 1, we see this. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, remember this? And said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In other words, you're the Christ. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You're gonna see greater signs than these. In order to do what? To prove that I'm the Christ, right? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel believed because of the display of Jesus' omniscience, Right? And then Jesus says, you will see more, and it will be clear that I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. In fact, Jesus even rebukes the crowds in John 6. Look at this. He says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Listen now, like watch that closely. Look at these verses closely. Jesus rebuked them. But he wouldn't have rebuked them if they were coming because they saw signs. That would have been proper, right? That would mean that they were coming because they had seen the signs and because it was a display to them that, they were the, that he was the Christ who saves. This is what he's trying to make clear. This is the reason for which he's coming. This is what his miracles are pointing to. But he rebukes them here because what they wanted from him was simply the results of the miracles, which was what? The bread. And he says, the miracles aren't an end to themselves. They're meant to point to who I am and what I've come to do and what I have authority to do. He didn't come to perform miracles. There's a reason why they're called signs. They give evidence of his messiahship, right? And these are proofs. They give full evidence of who he is. And now we have something even more sure, as Peter says, 
a display of all these proofs, of all these signs, a picture of all this, and the whole narrative of the Christ, pointing to the sense that he is the Messiah who has come to save sinners. And even if we just focus on this, on this fact in John 1 through 7, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who saves, you know the Messiah means what? Anyone know? Yeah, or Savior. Savior. That's the very reason for which he's come. His very title points to his purpose. The Christ, the Messiah, which means Christ, the Savior, he has come. It's so clear Jesus has come to save sinners. He didn't come to heal physically. He he didn't come to provide physical bread. He didn't just come to set a good example for people so that they can say, wow, what a moral man whom I can follow. Jesus came to save sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones says we mustn't make primary what Jesus makes secondary, right? He didn't come to establish a monarchy in Israel. He, He came to save sinners. That's what the Messiah came to do, had authority to do, which is why he must suffer. You know, the whole Bible even makes it clear as God's title is oftentimes referred to as a savior, God is by nature a savior. That's who he is. Uh, And and this is what he points to. And to be saved, let me just tell you, it means literally means to be delivered, right? If you want to know what does saved mean or salvation, it means to be delivered, right? And, And that very essence even gives us the purpose for which Jesus came, to be delivered. To be delivered from what? From death. It's to deliver someone out of a, a, a situation or a threat. That what, that's what to be saved means, right? What's your threat? It's death. It's the wrath of God. Jesus has come to deliver us from God's wrath, right? This is the purpose. The whole Bible has made this clear, right? In the Old Testament, we see references to God as God our Savior, right? God our Deliverer. This was the plan all along. Now let's move on to from our Christology to our soteriology. This idea of salvation and that God not only saves the lost, which is the reason for which he's come, but he has come to seek and to save the lost. This speaks of God's initiative. Do you know this whole passage here of Zacchaeus is is great and joyful and simple as it is? It's meant to point to, to the initiative of God in order to provide this salvation. It speaks to his initiative. And not only here, but verse 10 tells us this is speaking to a much larger picture. This is the initiative of God to save sinners, to seek and to save. And this isn't seeker sensitive, right? By nature, that that idea means that you withhold truth in order to uh, attract sinners. Jesus never withholds truth. And this fights against that idea even more so because this speaks of the sovereignty of God in salvation where that would be the sovereignty of man in salvation, right? Jesus here is speaking to the sovereignty of God and his initiative in providing salvation. We understand that sinners are in a a terrible state. This This is what Mike read. In Romans chapter three, it says this, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one, and and note there in verse 11, no one seeks for who? 
God. On your own, think about your life before your salvation. Just think about it for a minute. And the fact that you would just keep on drifting into your sin and keep on pursuing it until the end of your life, blind, as the Bible says, and deaf to the reality of your state before God. And God in his loving kindness intercedes. That's a miracle. He says this. It goes on to say this, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. That was you before Christ. You, you didn't think so. But in your standing before God and, and the depth of your sin, this is the reality that you stand in, and this is the reality of anyone who doesn't know Christ currently. We might say, oh, they're just a bad person, or they do a few things wrong. Here's what the Bible says. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, this is true of everybody, apart from Christ, right? And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sins. In other, in other words, no man will justify himself, and no man seeks after God on their own. But God seeks out the sinner, and God seeks, furthermore, to save the sinner. Not just to initiate this, but to see it through. How does he do this? Well, he does it first by sending Christ. He takes the initiative. He seeks the sinner. How? By the incarnation. By the incarnation. Jesus came to save sinners. First John tells us, and hopefully you read that too, right, in your Bible reading plan. Everyone read the whole book of First John? Yes. No lying in church. All right. What happened? He says this in 1 John. It's not that we loved him, but that he what? Loved us. This is, and then what? Sent his son. The incarnation is the initiative of God to save sinners. He loved us, as, and he came as a propitiation. Alistair Begg says this. God was do, willing to do what was necessary to bring sinful people to himself. What a miracle. What an act of grace and mercy. What, what an act of loving kindness. You know what loving kindness is? It's God's faithful pursuit of sinners. Right? Ezekiel says this about God's saving work. Watch this. He says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. Wow. Didn't God fulfill that in Christ? He seeks the sinner. And God initiates this work by sending his son and then by also affecting the work of salvation in the mind and the heart of the sinner. We read this in our study through John. John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
And then in just a few verses later, John 6, says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. He chooses, he calls, he eliminates and he uh, illuminates and he saves. This is what he will do with Zacchaeus. And when Jesus leaves, who does this work but the work of the Spirit? Right? Look at what John 16 says. It says this, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. You know what he does? He convicts sinners of their sin. He shows what righteousness is in Christ. And then he speaks of the final judgment. He illuminates this final judgment when a sinner will stand before God. And everyone will stand before God. Notice now, as we've talked about in the beginning, it's a very short time, you're almost home. And you will see God face to face. And so we praise God and we express endless joy that God seeks and saves sinners. Don't we? Without it, you are dead in your sins. You're dead in your trespasses. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the word of God that came down from heaven for our salvation to seek and to save the lost. You would be dead in your sins. You would remain guilty before God. You would be under the wrath of God. You would be remain, uh, you would remain in a, in a state of blindness, in a state of spiritual deafness without God's salvific work. This is who Christ is. This is what he's come to do. And this is indeed how he does it. So he has come to seek and to save the lost. And that's the very purpose for which I'm showing you this text and for which Luke gives it to us. To display to us that Jesus has come to seek and to save sinners. This is the purpose of the incarnation. This is the purpose of his suffering. This is what he is making clear here. And he will illustrate it with this great story with this little short man named Zacchaeus. And this text is wonderful and easy to, to divide. Uh, Luke gives it to us, and it, the matter can easily be divided into three points, to three headings, which make clear the proposition of, of the text, which is what I've said. Jesus is giving the clear reason for which he's come, which is to save sinners. Luke has given it to us in a way that can be easily divided into three points, and we see today, and we'll start with just number one, and next week we'll cover two and three, the seeking, verses one through five. Number two, the saving in verses six through nine. And then number three, the summary in verse 10. It's exactly as I've told you. Verse 10 is just a summary of what's taken place in the first nine verses of this text. And then furthermore, it's a summary of the reason for which Jesus came in general. And so to make these points clear from the text, we're just gonna take the, the first one, but let's take it by itself. We see first in this exposition, the seeking, the seeking, in verses one through five. It says this, he entered Jericho and was passing through and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and was rich 
and he was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see, for he was about to pass by. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come down, for I must stay at your house today. What an incredible, incredible picture here. Now you should know that there are no parallel accounts to this text. It's only found in Luke's gospel. And so Luke starts here by saying that Jesus entered Jericho. Now, we've spent some time explaining this region in the past few weeks, haven't we? You should know a little bit about Jericho, but I I won't take time to recap this, uh, recap all that information, but I will simply remind you of a couple things. Peter said even that it's good that you should be reminded, right? Which is why I repeat myself so often. Don't say anything back, okay? And yet, there are a couple new pieces of information that we also need to know, right? Particularly, remember this. Remember that there's a large crowd following Jesus, right? And that's confirmed even in the section in verse three. Look at verse three. He, uh, but on account of the what? Crowd, right? And so that crowd is full of various types of people. It's, very, it's full of curious people who just kind of want to know about this Jesus. It's full of superficial disciples. It's full of pilgrims from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem during the Passover. As everyone will be on this journey, there will be a caravan of people heading in this direction. There always was for the Passover. That's how Jesus got lost, remember, when he went away from his parents. I think they were pretty good parents. You don't say, Mary and Joseph, how in the world do you lose your kid, right? But there was a procession. There was a caravan of people who would head to Jerusalem for the Passover, which was happening here, right? People who saw and heard about Jesus. There was people here, undoubtedly, who heard about the miracles because Bethany was so near to this place. And who did he raise from the dead in Bethany? Lazarus. And that wasn't a very long time ago. That was very recently. So there's people there. There's also true disciples in this, in this place. And so you need to know that. Well, let me also remind, uh, tell you of a couple of new things. First of all, Jericho is a very fertile land, right? It, it was very hot weather. Even in the winter, if you wore more than uh, a, a little light uh, long sleeve thing, you, you would be too hot. It was a very warm place. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful in every direction. There were valleys, mountains, palm trees. In fact, this is called, anyone know, the city of palms. Jericho is known as the city of palms. That was a nickname. There were flowers. Uh, there were valley, valleys of, of, of uh, budding trees, oils. In fact, Jericho, the name literally means fragrant or perfumed. Because this place smelled so good, right? That's what Jericho was. And it was a very important city. Even Archelaus brought about the beautiful gardens. And then Herod established even here an amphitheater. This was a very, very prominent place. It was known as the Eden of Palestine. As we told you a couple weeks ago, there was an old Jericho and there was a new Jericho. 
And they weren't far from each other, but in this place here, you were surrounded by the hills of Moab, the, the limestone in the hills towards Jerusalem, the wilderness of Judea, and then six miles from both the, the, uh, the Jordan and the Dead Sea. I mean, it's perfectly situated, right? It's below sea level, so you had straight up about 18 miles over the course of about 700 uh, feet uh, towards Jerusalem. And this would be, this is the picture. And, and so this is where these people are. Now, the reason that it's important for you to know this is this was also the last stop for pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem. As people were heading to Jerusalem by the way of Perea, across the Jordan, through old Jericho, into new Jericho, and then an incline towards Jerusalem, this was the last stop. And so it was strategically located. All kinds of people from every direction came through here. Galilee people, Perea people, Arabia and Damascus people, Jerusalem people, Bethany people. There were different kinds of people, priests, thieves, politicians, soldiers, pilgrims, hermits, and more. These are the people who are coming through here. And it's important to note that this was a central station for tax collection for the Roman tax center. All the taxes would pass through here, meaning the tax collections from the various regions of Israel would come through here before being handed over to who? Rome, right? Rome collected the taxes from the Jews. And the Jews were required to pay these taxes. And this would be the last stop before those taxes would head back to Rome and Rome would be paid what they required, demanded. And now Jesus has entered this particular place and was passing through. Passing through to where? Jerusalem. Old Jericho to Jerusalem through New Jericho. Right? Verse two then. All that sets us up. It says, behold, meaning um, pay attention to this. Right? There was a man named, what? Who? Zacchaeus. This is important. This is important. Now, the name Zacchaeus is a Jewish name. And so that's going to be important later that you notice that this man is a Jew. Okay? And ironically, his name means clean or innocent or righteous. Right? And this couldn't be further from the truth as we're about to see. But think about God's providence here for just a moment. Think about his providence here, that he aims to show how Jesus comes to seek and to save sinners. He illustrates this with a man whose name means clean or innocent, which only amplifies the fact that he is the exact opposite. Right? And it, what is meant by his name is not who he is. He's the opposite. And through Christ's seeking and saving, he will become clean and what? Innocent. What a picture. Now, Zacchaeus' name is given here. And it's significant that it's given because typically we're not given the names of the tax collectors except for who? One name, Matthew. Other than that, they're nameless. They're never given names. But... Primarily here, 
We see that it's given probably because of the same reason Bartimaeus' name was given in the last text, which was the fact that it assumes Zacchaeus became a very serious, integral part of the early church, right? It's even spoken of in church history accounts and very spoken of. This isn't just like I read one little book and found out this and decided to jump on it. I mean, this, was, this is everywhere, right? That Zacchaeus is, was probably handed uh, the pastoral leadership from Peter in the church in Caesarea Philippi. So this man probably became a pastor, right? And so now... We see here at this point that he certainly isn't living up to his name. And how do we know that? It, we know that because of what comes next, verse 1. He was a chief, what? Tax collector and was rich, right? Now, you know this. I've told you about this before. A, a tax collector, right? We're given six other encounters with Jesus and tax collectors before. This is the sixth one. And this is the last one that we're going to see. And as I've told you before, tax collectors are Jews who would bid for, and you know this, and then organize tax collection from the Jews for Rome, right? You'd bid for this role and say, I'll give you this much in return, Rome, and you would get the job. And you would have a, you would have a certain amount that you would have to give back to Rome. Right? There was just a straight amount, right? Probably too much work to actually get this thing exact. And so they would just have a set amount that the tax collector would have to give back to Rome. And anything beyond that, you could keep. And so this would just set up all kinds of illegitimate taxes. People would just tax, your, your wagon has an extra wheel on it. We're going to tax it. Right? It would just set up all this kind of, uh, of freedom from for the tax collectors, and Rome did not care to stop it. Why? Because this is the type of people that it would require in order to, to, to collect tax from your own people. Someone who was dishonest. Someone who was advantageous. Someone who was eager and zealous. Right? And someone who was shrewd. It would require that in order for him to collect the taxes on behalf of Rome. And, and as long as they were getting what they needed, they didn't care. And also at the same time, this man would become very rich. And he had the protection of Rome because no one's going to stop him because he's collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. And so for the Jews, they would just collect as much as they want and give back what was required by Rome and then keep the rest. They were hated by the Jews because they associated with them, themselves with Gentiles. They had dealings with Gentiles. They were considered unclean. And then they were outcasts of Israel, therefore, spiritually speaking, and then socially speaking. And then they were also, listen now, despised by Rome as well, because they were just puppets. They were merely Jewish traitors of their own people, right? They would cheat their own to make a buck, and they didn't care who they were dishonest with. Uh, as long as Rome got what they required, the tax collectors only served one God, and that was mammon, right? And Zacchaeus, Luke says, look at this, verse one, uh, two, he was a chief tax collector. Meaning this, in the central station 
of tax collection, Zacchaeus is first rank. That's who Zacchaeus is. You can't get higher than this position in regards to tax collection. This is who Zacchaeus is. He's signifying, this is signifying he was not only dishonest, but he was condoning the dishonesty far and wide. All the other dishonest people were working for him and they would give back to him and then he would benefit from it and he would give what was necessary for Rome. He could uh, care less about his status with the Jews, his social status, his religious status, right? And so because of his dishonesty combined with his high position and making a commission off of what he collected from everyone who was underneath him, we are told in verse two that he was rich. He was rich, right? Now think about this. What did Jesus tell us just a little while ago in Luke's gospel? That it's more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In fact, it is what? Impossible for a rich man to give up his wealth in order to follow Christ. In that passage, it was a lordship passage. It wasn't like, oh, the rich won't see their need because they have wealth. I mean, that might be true, but it was the rich refused to give up their main pursuit of money in order to mainly pursue God. It's a lordship issue, that passage, right? And so it's impossible to choose to submit to Christ as Lord over your wealth. Jesus already told us that. Now, you got to understand this, and let's set this in place it's not, it wasn't dishonest to be, a, or it wasn't a sin to be a tax collector in general. Think about this. God set up the government. He set up taxes to fund it. Even in the Old Testament, every Jew had to pay 23.3%. That's a lot, right? You're lucky. It was not sinful to pay taxes or to collect taxes. Even the repentant tax collectors, when they asked John the Baptist how they needed to change in order to follow Jesus, John doesn't tell them to quit paying taxes, you know what he says? Come and collect no more than what? Than you're authorized to do. You don't have to stop being a tax collector. Just don't be what? Dishonest or greedy, right? There's not a sin to be a tax collector. In fact, Jesus even says this in Luke 20, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. In other words, paying taxes doesn't mean you're unfaithful to God, but just remember that your whole life belongs to God. Right, So we need taxpayers in this room. Romans 13 even speaks of the issue, and then Jesus even paid his taxes in Matthew 27. Right, So the issue is not that he's a tax collector and this is his job. The issue is that he's a dishonest man who's made an, a lot of wealth off of his dishonesty. Right, And so here, this is Zacchaeus. Tax collectors would tax anything they wanted, and here's the other deal. Ready? They would use physical violence. Don't just think like they just sent like a letter in the mail. Right? They would use physical violence. Tax collectors would be surrounded by thugs. Because these thugs would get paid in order to collect the taxes. And so other thieves and criminals would be surrounded by him, which is why when we see in the scriptures, tax collectors are referred to as tax collectors and what? Sinners. That's an official title. These are people who are committed to thievery. These are thugs. 
These are thieves. This is what the tax collector would be surrounded by. He would always be associated with this kind of group. Luke 15 says this, now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And even in the section we are looking at today, look at verse six. So he hurried and came down, uh, received him joyfully, and they all grumbled and they said, he is gone to be a guest in the house of a man who is a what? Sinner. They're not speaking of that in the, necessarily the spiritual sense that you understand it. They're speaking of that in the sense of, of uh, his label in society. And so verse three then, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, it writes out. This is a curiosity. That's the reason why Luke tells us he was seeking to see who Jesus was, right? Luke is pointing this out to us intentionally. Jesus sought him out and provided salvation. Zacchaeus sought him out and sat in a tree. If Jesus had not stopped and looked up at Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus would remain in that tree and Jesus would just keep on what? Going. He sits up in the tree. It's Jesus who initiates this response. It's just what is being pointed out to us. He's passing through. Why is he passing through? He's passing through because he's going to Jerusalem, right? Verse three. But on account of the crowd, meaning there was a large crowd there and he could not see who Jesus was because he was what? Small in stature, is a short man. Short, thief, right? He's probably got a, a small man's complex, right? He, he just really is probably a man who is uh, puffing his chest out at, at all times, right? And he says here, it says here, He's just an outsider. Listen now, he's just an outsider. He's just a curious outsider, just like the rest of the crowd. He's just a curious outsider at this point, just like the rest of the crowd. There's a lot of curious people around Jesus. But verse four, it tells us he was seeking to solve the problem with the fact that he couldn't see Jesus, so he ran on ahead. He ran on ahead where? Well, he knew exactly where Jesus was headed because there would be a path to go to where? Jerusalem. He knew exactly how to get through the city to Jerusalem. He went on ahead to where Jesus was going to be on the path and where the pilgrims were headed. And verse four says, then he climbed into a sycamore tree. This is like an oak tree. It's not like a mulberry of, of Western Europe here, but it's like a short trunk, wide, long, lateral branches, easy to climb, exactly like the trees we have here. It's easy for us to see. You got them all around you. That's the type of tree we're, we're looking at here. And he did this, verse four, for he was about to pass by. He meaning who? Jesus. He was sitting and waiting to see in the sycamore tree who Jesus was. And he's a curious onlooker. Verse five. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up at him. Can you imagine this? Jesus came to the place, meaning the place where Zacchaeus was perched. He just looked up at him. Right? Can you imagine the eye contact? When that happened, the first time Zacchaeus is just this curious onlooker, and all of a sudden now here's Jesus who stops and just looks directly up at Zacchaeus. Points him out. Sees him exactly for who he is. 
identifies him alone out of the massive crowd. This is starting to point to the picture of salvation. Remember, this is real, but this is an illustration of seeking and saving the lost. He looks up right at Zacchaeus. Among all of the massive amount of people who are around him, he points out this man individually. What a picture of salvation. Think about that for a minute. He looked up at him. He knew exactly where Zacchaeus would be. This was not incidental, right? And I'm gonna show you that in a minute. He said to him, Zacchaeus, he calls him by what? Name, he never met him before. And Jesus said to him, hurry, this points to Jesus's omniscience, right? And then he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, which are two imperatives, meaning they're commands. He identifies and he commands and the person who is going to be saved obeys, right? He comes and he calls him immediately with commands and he says to Zacchaeus, come down, hurry and come down, right? Which Zacchaeus obeys. And then Jesus states, verse five, the reason for him saying that, he says, for I must stay at your house today. Now, this is a marvelous statement here. Must here is the particle day, D-E-I. And it's used throughout Luke's gospel to indicate divine necessity. When Jesus uses this, here's some examples, right? When he left his parents' side, as I mentioned earlier, he says this, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's the same use. That's divine necessity. That's where he was supposed to be according to the divine plan of God, right? He even uses this again when he speaks of the events of his ministry. Jesus says this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And then even furthermore, he says this, the son of man, what? Must suffer many things. There's the particle day again. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed on the third day, be raised. In other words, Jesus calls him and says, this was God's plan all along. And out of divine necessity, because this was the divine plan of God, today's the day that I must stay at your house and save you. He's walking by, he looks up, identifies Zacchaeus, displays his omniscience by calling him by name and says, hey, Zacchaeus, get down from here. Today's the day that was planned for me to come to your house. I gotta stay there in order to fulfill the divine plan. Right? In other words, Jesus calls him because that was the plan all along. And think about this. Amazingly, Jesus just a moment ago, a moment ago was involved in a whole lot of other things. But he just knew at that point He's going to stop and look up to, at Zacchaeus and that was going to be uh, you know, the plan for him to then go to his house. I mean, Jesus just taking this thing one at a time. Obviously, we can't understand his omniscience. But he, when he arrived under that sycamore tree, under Zacchaeus, his plan was to stop, to look at him, to call him by name and say, get down, we gotta go to your house. This is the divine plan, right? 
He knew when he arrived at that very place, he would call Zacchaeus, commanded him to come down, stay at his home, and save him. But this goes further on, the fact that this was God's plan before the foundation of the earth. Ephesians 1 tells us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Jesus says he must stay at his house where the salvation will take place. And this must happen today. This is all divine necessity, God's plan being fulfilled today. So this indicates to us that the Lord not only knows who he will save, but where he will save them, when he will save them, and how he will save them. This is, this is Jesus doing the seeking work, right? John 3 says this, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the what? Spirit. Jesus says, this is where we gotta go. It has to be today. And you're the man, and, and this is what's about to happen. So Jesus here knows Zacchaeus before they ever met. He seeks him out. He commands him. He has a divine appointment with him this very day at Zacchaeus' house. And we're gonna see the next time that Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus receives Jesus with joy, right? He goes, and as a display of his salvation, it's pretty unique, isn't it, that the very things he repents of are the very things that this particular man is so guilty of, right? And so we're gonna see this great picture of salvation take place next, which today we saw the seeking. Now let me close this by saying this passage stresses Jesus' initiative to seek the lost, to proclaim salvation, to save sinners. That's why he came. Listen now, this is what he's saying. It's very clear at the end of verse 10. This is an illustration depicting a very great truth that also illustrates the whole reason, the larger picture for why he's come, to seek and to save the lost. And this is exactly what he's doing here. He's just summarizing it at the end. And this is what Jesus does. And so let me just challenge you. Let me challenge you. For you particularly, I don't know where you're at, where you're at in your walk with the Lord or where you stand in terms of salvation. But I pray that if Jesus is seeking you, if the Spirit is been calling you to salvation. If you're starting to see who Jesus is and the reason for which he's come, that you would respond joyfully like Zacchaeus does. That you would hurry and, and come to Jesus. That you would stop waiting. That you would repent of your sins as Zacchaeus does. And that you would trust in a Christ who for the very reason to save sinners is which he's come. He has come to save sinners who by their own merit cannot save themselves. And I invite you to do that, to respond to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith and be saved. And my encouragement to you, if you know Christ, is that you would rejoice for the sovereign work of God for coming to earth and calling you to salvation in him. What a gracious act of God. And that you would imitate Christ. That you would imitate Christ by going out and seeking the lost. 
trusting in the divine work of God. You can't affect the salvation. You can plant and you can water, but who gives the growth? God. And you don't withhold the truth to try to make it more attractive to the individual. You give all the truth, nothing but the truth, front-loaded, on the front side, or else you eliminate all the power from the gospel because there will be no conviction of sin, no necessity to repent, no immediacy of, of, of or impending judgment coming. You gotta give them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Right? And Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit will do the work, but that you would imitate Christ in this way by seeking the lost and trust God to do the saving work. This is the reason for which Jesus came. I encourage you to trust in Christ, to rejoice in what he's done if you know him, and to imitate him as one who seeks and saves the lost. Next week, we're gonna see the actual saving take place. Let's pray. Father, we come and we're thankful for your word to us. Thank you for this picture that you give us, this illustration that's before us. What a great illustration that points us to the very reason for which you've come. I pray for the people in this room that they would respond to your call. I pray, God, that we would rejoice in what you've done. And I pray that we would imitate you in our mission as we live. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.